Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concerns of black men and provide a forum for them to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. Hey, Keith here. I have a quiz for you. What do these six names have in common? Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Amon Arbery, Danny Ray Thomas, Jamar Clark, and Robbie Tolan. Not sure? I know you know the first three because they have been in the national spotlight for months for being gunned down by the police. But the latter three also were assaulted or gunned down by the police, but their stories were primarily ignored. We're going to talk to somebody today who wanted to change that. His name is Chris Colbert. He is the CEO of DCP Entertainment and the creator of the Say Their Name podcast, a seven-part series that highlights not only the three names I just mentioned, but four others who were unarmed when they were assaulted or killed by the police. What's sobering about the podcast is it shows not only what happens to the victim, but also how the assault or death impacted their families. On that note, let's start the show. In 2006, so Sirius and XM were two different companies. Over the time I was there, they eventually merged. But when I first got there, satellite radio was so new. Um, most people didn't even know what Sirius satellite radio was or satellite radio in general. So there was a lot of freedom to really um, you know, try new ideas, um, hear new voices. Um, even myself starting out early on, I got an opportunity to interview a lot of comedians. I worked in the comedy department. And so because it was such a new medium, because there were so many different channels, you know, these bosses were able to take opportunities on on different people behind the scenes in front of the camera. Um, and I got to take advantage of that. Um, so it really gave me a great basis for starting my career to allow me to understand what possibilities could be out there and not just be stuck in this mode of this is the way radio has always been done. And I think that's really lends itself to this transition into the podcast world, because that's very much a similar situation of, you know, being in a young industry that's still figuring itself out fully and, and just you know pushing the limits in, in a lot of different areas. Wow, that's great. That's great. And so you said you were you're in the comedy kind of department. Where are you a comedian by trade or <laughs> no I, I wish I, I wish I could say I was um, no so I worked on the comedy channels I was hired there to uh, be an intern for the comedy department and how I actually got my job was that um, I had created what my boss called a quote-unquote urban comedy channel and he didn't want it to be the white Irish guy's take on urban comedy uh, and you know kudos to him for not trying to just you know slap something on and say hey you're gonna like it and for those out there who don't know what you know that term urban means, it usually means black, brown, you know, focused kind of programming. And so uh, I created that station uh, from scratch, uh, okay. creating this, this, yeah, a lot of my viewing as a child of Comic View and um, Def Comedy Jam just really gave me a basis for knowing who those comedians were. And so that's actually how I got my job because uh, I want to say four months after my internship, Jamie Foxx came along and said he wanted to create the Foxhole. Uh, which would be a comedy station and a music station. So a little bit more than what I had put together, but the comedy side was something I'd already created. So my bosses called me and asked me if I want to come back and help create a station from scratch. And that's how I started my career um, at Sirius. And so I've never been a comedian myself, never been on stage, but yeah. my homework was going to comedy clubs and you know giving opportunities to different comedians when it comes to getting radio play. 
Um, and for a lot of them, I've found that it's actually helped to prolong their careers because much like in, in radio, these artists, these comedians get to make money every time you play them. So uh, it was a great, a great opportunity and a great job to have, especially when you're young in your 20s in New York City, you can take your dates to comedy clubs. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that must have been pretty um, awesome to be able to have such creative freedom uh, to kind of start something from scratch, and especially with uh, a medium like that where we've had, you know, we've had countless comedians uh, like Def Com in Def Comedy Jam with the Robin Harris's and Richard Pryor who've kind of paved the way. So for you to, to go out and give young upstart comedians that opportunity must have been pretty fantastic. It was. It was. Honestly, till this day, some of the, the best messages I ever got were people just literally telling me that they were able to continue being a comedian because we played them. So, yeah, nothing really compares to that kind of feeling. And so then to fast forward, you decided to embark on your own and start DCP Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so how, what, what led you to go ahead and branch out on your own and to start your own company? Yeah, I'd say probably about, you know, I worked with SiriusXM for 11 years, which in the media industry is a very long time. And I think probably about eight years in, maybe nine, somewhere around that, um, I just really started to see that across the media landscape, there weren't enough opportunities being given to particularly Black people, but then, you know, in a greater spectrum, people of color, women, LGBTQ plus communities. I just saw that even when there were shows being given to those kinds of hosts, they weren't being given the same uh, resources of talent booking or press, marketing, things like that, that can really help a show grow, but they're still held to the same standards as say a white mm -hmm. cis male hosted show. Mm -hmm. And so couple that with the fact that I also come from an entrepreneurial family where my mother was a female business owner, my sister is a female business owner, um, both of, you know, even my sister who's about the same age as me went into business for herself while I was working at Sirius. And so we've had that entrepreneurial spirit. It's always been driven in us that if you really want to create and you really want to uh, uh, influence things the way that you would like to, you need to do that within your own space. And so that's where once I saw these opportunities that were lacking and then I looked also at this you know, entrepreneurial uh, spirit, this endeavor that I have within my own family, I kind of brought those together to say, all right, it's time to step out on my own and create DCP enter entertainment where we can now be a voice for what I like to call underrepresented communities. The, those communities I just mentioned, Black, Latino, uh, women, LGBTQ+, but also a space to have conversations around things like mental health, things that aren't being talked enough in the media landscape or are not being talked about enough responsibly. Um, and so that's kind of where we started the company and looking at it as a media company because we can do podcasts, we can do video content. If you know, five, 10 years from now, augmented reality or virtual reality are, are the big things that we need to do to reach our, our communities, then that's how we're gonna do it. So that's why we call ourselves a media company, but we do have a lot of podcast content that we focus on currently. Oh, that's, that's great. And yes, it's, and oddly enough, um, one of my good friends, Mark Thompson, is with DCP Entertainment, and he was. We interviewed him a couple of several weeks ago, and um, we also. I also have a connection with the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, working for an organization called Rising Tide Capital, who help entrepreneurs here in the kind of the New Jersey uh, area. So I can truly uh, commend you for uh, what you're doing. So then, you know, fast forward again, you're have a lot of successful shows on there uh, make, with Make It Plain being one of them. I know Ture is also on your uh, platform. But then you decided you wanted to 
create this podcast that's going to be coming out in, I think it's in October. Correct. Uh, called, yeah, called Say Their Name. So what, what made you decide to, to, to do that? Yeah, Say Their Name, you know, though it's coming out this October, October 12th, um, though it's coming out this year, we actually started on it in 2019. And it was already an idea that we wanted to start since the beginning of the company in uh, 2018, when we, we really got off the ground. Um, and the idea behind it is the fact that when you look at these instances of uh, people who, and I will say, just be more specific about it, when we see these black people who are being killed by police um, and in stand your ground states, uh, a lot of times, and this was before George Floyd and before Breonna Taylor and, and all the people that you mentioned before and the countless others whose names we haven't heard, what we've noticed is that when we do mention these names, we, we move on so quickly. Um, you know, they, they are either a name or a statistic where we're now talking about, okay, this person from Fort Worth, Texas, or they sometimes become a region. They don't even become a name anymore. Uh, and so I wanted something that could allow us to memorialize these individuals, speak about who they were as human beings, um, the trajectory that their life was on when it was senselessly taken away, and doing so by allowing the family to talk about these people and letting them point us in the right direction to talk to others, whether they be friends or uh, pastors or uh, people in the community who can speak to who this person was. So first and foremost, the creation of uh, Say Their Name was all about how do we allow these people's name to live on forever in a real fashion? Because even with social media, when we use these hashtags, eventually we move on to the next hashtag and we kind of forget about these other ones. And uh, in this series, you'll notice there are some stories that particularly talk to that. There was a person who was killed and then three days later, Michael Brown was killed. And so they completely forgot about this individual. There was another person who was killed on the same night as two, or sorry, was shot on the same night as two other people, including Oscar Grant. Um, and so it's just, you know, an opportunity to tell these people's real stories of who they were. But then at the same time, looking at it and understanding that, much like I said, with the news cycle moving on so quickly, and we sometimes forget these names, we also, because that news cycle moves quickly, we don't fully know the impact that this has had on these families, on these communities. Um, and not just within that first year or two, but what happens the seven, six, uh, you know, 20 years for some of these families that they're fighting to try to get justice uh, for their loved one and to try to get some kind of civil action uh, to help recoup a lot of the legal fees they have or medical fees or to bury their own children. Um, and so that's that's really where this series came from, was was wanting to do those two things in particular. And then it then evolved into what we have now with Say Their Name, where we're also raising money. Uh, for these families that we are talking about in this series to make sure that there's some tangible difference right out of the gate to help these families. And so, you know, that's kind of why we started, but there's so many other facets that go along with it um, yeah, yeah. now that we've really gotten into it. Yeah, and that was um, in, in kind of highlight looking back at some of the names that were on the show, it was, it was very um, hard to kind of go back and look and see some of those, some of the things that occurred and the fact that we... We actually really never heard of some of these stories, which is very tragic. Um, and I won't give all the, you know, all the names. And so in the, in the fact that I think you also highlighted that 985 people were gunned down you know, by, by the police in 2020. And now I'm sure and I'm sure that wasn't just African-Americans. It was just people in general. But the fact that this is in the media, if we don't keep their names in the forefront you know that they go away probably within a several days or a week or so and you know to bring them back and to hear their story i think is fantastic so 
Um, but and so and then also you decided, I think you took on a more active role. You were kind of used to being behind the scenes, but you, you did the traveling around and you know, the interviewing and talking to the families. And so what made you decide to step into and in taking a more active role in, with this story? Yeah. So with this one, you know, I really wanted it to be more in-house, allow it to be myself and my co-host Adele Coleman, who also is our chief content officer at DCP Entertainment. Uh, and both of us actually had this idea separate of each other. And we really came together to, to build this from scratch. So part of it was, hey, we both had this idea. We're the ones creating it. We should be the ones to help see this thing through as the host, as the narrators. Um, but the other piece was because her and I aren't, you know, big name, you know, entertainers or influencers or anything like that. It allows it to be really about these individuals and not about us, not about the people who are presenting the stories. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's tons of celebrities that we'd love to be able to work with on these kind of projects, or if we were able to even bring them in to be the full on host, but then it might become really about them a little bit more than it might become about the families. And not because those people wanted it to be, but just, that's just the nature of, uh, our, our, uh, our love of celebrities. <laughs> yeah, our love. I was trying yeah. to think of a different word for love, yeah, but yeah, yeah. our yeah. love of celebrities, our infatuation. That's what, you know, yeah. our infatuation with celebrities is the word I was looking for. But yeah, they, um, we love to work with those kind of people. But for us, it's great because now we can really focus on these voices of the families. And so a lot of times when you listen to these episodes, you'll hear very little of myself or of Adele um, because we really want one interviewer to jump to the next and then go right into a press conference that really sums up what they just said. So all of it is about their voices. And, you know, we felt the most effective way to do that was through allowing us to be those narrators, the um, interviewers. And the reason I went out on the road to do this is actually, we when we started in 2019, we uh, were flying around to a different, uh, a few different cities, different states, because we felt that it's important to showcase these different areas, um, not just in New York or not just in LA. Like we want to hit a few different regions to showcase that this is not just something happening in one place. Again, you have to remember when we first started this, the George Floyd incident didn't happen. Right. Um, so a lot of America, especially white America, didn't understand the scope of this. Everything just felt like one-offs to them. So mm. uh, that's why we, we went the strategy we went with going around the country. But as soon as COVID hit, um, it complicated things. And so now instead of flying, uh, we took a three week road trip uh, around the country to finish up uh, the recording of this series back in June and July. Okay. So we did a, a couple uh, of things in Houston back in 2019. And then the rest of the series was really done uh, traveling around uh, on the road. And I actually uh, had my mother as my assistant producer while I was okay. on the road uh, doing some of these. So it, it added an extra element into this, having her on the road with her son as we're talking to these families and a lot of times mothers about losing their sons. Uh, so I also just from a personal standpoint, I think wow. it was enriching to kind of be on that journey with her and, and get her perspectives and, and hear her questions as we talk to these families. That's interesting. I, you know, and I didn't realize that. So that must have really had a deep, deep impact on her seeing, you know, uh, parents losing their children and in, in, in such a uh, very tragic fashion. It did. And I think it really hit home too. I think with uh, the family of John Crawford, we were in their house. Literally, we did a seven hour straight interview with all the family members there. And we didn't leave their home until about 1.30 in the morning, two in the morning. And after hearing all these stories about the police in the Cincinnati, Ohio area um, and Dayton area, that she was afraid to let me drive. You know, she just was like, hey, I'm going to take the keys. We're, you know, I'm going to ride us back. 
because now that fear has really gotten into her just from what we had just heard and about that particular region. So she did an incredible job out there, but I know that one was particularly tough for her um, to, to hear that. And then for us to then try to go out in that same environment that we had just heard about, um, just to literally get back to our hotel. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm from the Cincinnati area, so I can, um, was born there. I can kind of get a sense of that so i never heard of timothy thomas by the way i learned about him while i was out there so i think it was like 2001 but it caused uh, some unrest there in, in the yeah. ohio area that i just at that stage in my life i just wasn't as cog cognizant of and i right. think it's interesting now to go through these stories and see these things that were happening without really being aware so out of the the podcast the, the seven part series which one impacted you the most i'd say the one that it's really tough. They all all impact me a lot for different reasons. Um, but I'll say the one that I guess hit home to me the most was the story of Robbie Tolan, uh, who happens to be the only person that we focus on in this first season uh, who actually lived. He was shot by police in his front yard. Um, and the parallels there are that he's from Bel Air, Texas, a suburb of Houston. Um, I'm actually uh, spent most of my life growing up in Bel Air, Maryland. Um, so there was just that weird coincidence of Bel Air, Bel Air. We, we are the exact same age, um, both Robbie and I. Uh, we have so many of the, the similar aspirations. He was going to try to be a Major League Baseball player. He actually is the son of a Major League Baseball player. Right. I wanted to be in the NBA, as many people did. Um, so just our parallels on you know trying to be these athletes and uh, the fact that when he was shot, he was pulled over in his own driveway uh, for stealing or for suspicion of stealing the car that he owns. I also have been pulled over before and sat on a curb for about an hour uh, under suspicion of stealing my own car. Mm. And so, you know, those parallels, I think, really hit home to me to think like, wow, just the one little split second decision by an officer could have changed my life. Um, and so I think that one hit home to me on a personal level, just those weird coincidences mixed with the very real coincidence of fitting the description. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and when I looked at uh, the video of him and I was like, wow, Bobby Tolan, cause I just remember, you know, I'm a little bit older, so I know Bobby Tolan used to play for the Reds. And so I'm sure I had his baseball card and to see that, you know, and I also played baseball in college. And so to see that, you know, his career was cut down, you know, pretty much because of this, it, it, it's, it's very frustrating to kind of witness or watch that, you know, by no fault of his own and with a simple, I guess, a simple way of just first looking at him as human first and doing the due diligence that police officers are supposed to do um, before thinking about the creating a violent act is just really it's just it's hard to even fathom that that this just can't occur yeah and um what i w also want to ask so in the kind of the seven part series did you kind of see a pattern of misconduct or um how p how the police or you know what how overall theme to these individuals yeah, I think it's an interesting question because every story is unique, obviously, and, and we're talking about different regions, so it's completely different police departments, different structures to how investigations happen, but there is the common thread through them that it's not just one thing that's wrong. It's a lot of things. It's the judicial system, it's the politicians, it's the media, it's the, um, the police, obviously. So um, I think the biggest thing that you'll see that we already 
especially within the black community know a lot of it is based on perception and the and the fact that they uh, police um and these people in stand your ground states many times can hide behind i felt threatened um i felt that my life was in danger and that's the the fallback that they always can and do go to because it's an explanation that they don't fully have to provide evidence for even when all the evidence speaks completely against them um and so i think that's that common thread that which has gotten kind of twofold that black people are seen as threatening uh even if they don't have a weapon um and that the people who will then shoot or assault uh, black people are then allowed to have this uh you know this out clause of just saying i felt threatened and again that's something that we already know but i think the series also shed the light on all the various ways that that is done um and how there is opportunities to change that, but a lot of it has to do with making major changes within the, the judicial and political systems in, in our local governments, not just our federal. So the media, and again, every story is different, but one thing that we found with the media is that they automatically believe the police narrative. And I think one of our guests summed it up really well in saying, you know, we don't believe other people who are accused of uh, murder or, you know, accused of assault when they tell you what had happened. So why do we automatically believe uh, the police in these situations or these people in these stand your ground states. So I think, you know, that's one of the roles that media plays in it is that we just, you know, without any kind of due diligence, you know, we just completely take the police at their word and we run their narrative, which then allows them later to, uh, you know, say, well, this is what happened, even though we now know something different. Um, the other is the fact that, uh, I guess, similar to that, the images that we use of the people who are killed many times, the victims, you know, these black individuals who were unarmed when they were killed by police or in, by these stand your ground people, those images aren't chosen by the families. We're not reaching out to these families to say, hey, do you have a picture of your loved one? We're taking a prison shot. We're taking a football shot. We're taking a shot where someone might look aggressive to fit the narrative that the police are saying, even though this person may be the kindest hearted person in the world. Um, and so, you know, talking to these families, we flat out ask them a lot of times, did media ever reach out to you for your side of the story or, you know, for a picture to, to, to make sure that your child is held into the kind of light that you think that they should be held into and almost to a person, they all said no. And I think, you know, I, I not to say that the media in these areas are trying to do anything wrong. I think that there is a lack of understanding of when they take these actions, what it does um not only to these families and re-victimizing them but also what it does in hurting their chances to get a victory especially within civil court so i'm surprised that the media they don't they don't do they don't do their due diligence in trying to reach out to hear the other side of the story uh it's well it's they're the more concerned about the sensationalism of the story and the fact that recently uh the more recent ones with Amon arbery because that was just so uh, blatant and sensational the fact that they were just gun he he was gunned down um by two non-police officers was even um, that disturbing and, and which also kind of leads to my next question uh which was about daniel prude and then some of the you know two of your stories you know dealt with uh individuals that had mental health challenges uh danny ray thomas and Caldrick Donald. So one of the things that was kind of disturbing in the Daniel Prude story is that it was clear that he had mental health issues. Uh, one, he was not clothed um, and also shouting and yelling about, you know, 
give me the gun or, you know, and using um, uh, strong language. Um, so, and so what I heard, you know, also in previous or from his brother's kind of account of the story is that he had contacted the police, you know, for help because his brother was lost and he didn't, you know, of course he was concerned about his safety. Um, so one of the things I, which I wasn't sure of, you know, it also happened, I think, in the other cases, you know, on your show where they called the contact of the police as well. So why are the police called um, and, and what is their kind of stance or policies around mental health, individuals with mental health? Yeah, I think um, every region is different. I think this is where a lot of the, the conversations around defund the police come in, because I, I think the ones who I tend to, to kind of side with in terms of how to defund the police, it goes to not telling the police shouldn't be the one handling mental you know, people who have mental situations, mental issues, uh, mental breakdowns. Yeah. It should be a social worker, someone who is trained for that specifically. And a lot of these places actually have that set up. But we still either call the police or the police themselves are not then contacting the dispatchers are not contacting the right people. So in the case of Danny Ray Thomas, his was a little different in the fact that his family members didn't call the police. He was having a manic episode in the middle of the street, much similar to Daniel Prude in terms of having his pants down, you know, shirt. Like he, he was he had no way of having any kind of weapon. on. So the fact that you have to approach him in a life or death kind of situation shouldn't have been the case. In the situation of Keldrick Donald, his mother did call the police. She actually had called them the night before. Uh, by the time they got there, her son had left. By the time he came back, she called again and tried to actually speak to the officers beforehand and say, hey, things are kind of calmer now. Just approach him, you know, very subdued. Don't, don't get him agitated. And then that, the officer gets in there and agitates things and then chases him into their own house and confronts him in there. So, mm. you know, there is a situation where everything was done wrong. Uh, but the mother did everything right. She had numerous times in the past called the police and the police have de-escalated things, even the chief of police coming to her home and de-escalating things. And the real procedure there was that if this officer didn't know what to do or this officer actually was supposed to wait on backup and that backup was supposed to be one of these uh, medical professionals, then that would have been handled by the professionals or by someone who is more trained. So speaking to our individual cases, uh, the reason that these people are called is that it is... Uh, these families uh, opportunity to try to find a way to de-escalate things through someone who is better trained than them. But if we are then just deploying the police who had one or two hours of training, that is not the same as somebody who went to school and who is you know, working in a mental health care facility and understands the way to de-escalate that situation uh, for somebody who is you know, not seeing reason. They're, they're either high anxiety, they are bipolar, or they are schizophrenic, or maybe they're on some kind of substance. But these medical professionals are trained to handle that, whereas an officer is trained to, uh, when they see a threat, you know, we, we obviously understand now they are trained to then put down that threat. That threat, yeah. And, and it's interesting, not interesting, but what disturbed me the no most about Danny Ray Thomas was the video. They were clearly laughing uh, at him, filming it, and I don't know why they were laughing. It was clear there was something, you know, wrong with him. And the fact that they laughed and they didn't do anything. And then, of course, um, you know, the van blocked their view. And then before you know it, you know, he was shot. So that really, that really hurt that when I watched, you know, watched that. And it just, and that calls to a much bigger problem that we have in our communities around our, you know, people that are having mental health issues. 
And yeah. we have to be a lot more, we have to be a lot more cognizant and careful about how we handle or even have more empathy for these individuals. Um, but then, you know, of course, that's a, that would be another story uh, for another day. <laughs> yeah, but you're absolutely right. I think, you know, Danny's story, and I couldn't even spend this whole, this conversation here, even talking about the whole backstory there, because he was homeless. He, you know, I think it was only maybe a year before he died, I think it was only a few months, his former wife or his wife at the time killed his two kids yes. while he was serving time in prison. And so there's so much that we don't understand about these stories that I think, you know, that's why we're doing what we're doing. But to your point, especially as in, within the black community, we need to take mental health more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to know in the, during also in your story, did you interview any of the police or uh, law enforcement around the stories and what did they have anything to add or any insight on what could have been done differently or the situation that we're at hand in those, in those stories? Mm -hmm. We did not. And it was done on purpose. Um, we are very much as, as I like to tell the people that we talk to, we are very much biased in how we're presenting this material. We're biased in the sense that we are giving these families an opportunity to have a voice and have a platform. I don't feel that these families have had a platform, but these police, these judicial systems, they have. And if you want to get their side of the story, go read the newspaper, uh, go watch the news, go read the police report. Um, it's not to discount, uh, you know, any of their narrative, though, in some cases I am discounting because you'll see the facts, how we kind of, you know, lay them out from the family. But it's all about allowing the family to control the narrative is what this project is about. And so we our whole process is we get into contact with uh, the family themselves and then we say to them, who do you want us to talk to? And we will then follow through and make sure that we get to those people, whether they have a contact with them or not. It may have been someone they worked with 10 years ago. They have no contact to them. But we're now going to track them down. And in none of those situations, you know, those they, none of them want us to talk to the police there. And it's not them saying you cannot. It's just they're not saying, hey, that this the, the police aren't going to be a good representation of what really happened because mm -hmm. of all these extenuous situations. Um, and so, yeah, we very much are biased of how we're presenting this. And we're very proud to do it that way um, because we don't think anybody else is allowing these people to speak for themselves. Right. Right. Okay. And so that's a great, thank you for, for adding that. Uh, so I just had a, another kind of a question around the story. So did any of the families feel that their, you know, their siblings should have done anything differently uh, in order to preserve their life? Um, because I know there's an, and I know there was the recent instance uh, that happened in Milwaukee where the young man was getting involved in a kind of domestic dispute. And so he was in a kind of a fight, but then he walked around uh, to his car. And of course, the, the story gets a little foggy there because uh, you feel that he might have, might have he, they, there was a weapon on site or at least say alleged weapon on site. And the way it looks is if he just walked around the car and me and my wife debated this story because um we thought felt that you know the the officer was telling him to stop but he you know but he didn't until he got and then he got to a point where uh, there was a weapon scene and so which led into an altercation that led to him being shot yeah. uh so i'd love to hear were there any instances where the families thought the, their uh, siblings should have done something different. 
No, I don't think there's anywhere they, you know, outright said, hey, I wish they would have done X, Y, and Z different. I think there are one or two families where, yes, they think that if they, you know, that their loved one wouldn't have been in a certain place at a certain time or, you know, did a certain thing that they may still be alive. But at the same time, all of these offenses that happened to these individuals, they were unarmed. And so at the end of the day, they deserve to have had their day in trial if they had done something wrong. Um, and we unfortunately continue to see as you know, people who are sometimes doing things a lot worse than these individuals uh, who, who happen to be white in their cases, they get to you know, get taken uh, peacefully. And so I think because we see that, you know, these families aren't about saying, well, we didn't have the talk with our kid and, and or, or our kid didn't you know, listen to everything we said about being respectful to the police or obeying their orders. Um, because we see that white people get to not do that and still come out and, and be alive and get hamburgers uh, from Burger King and things like that. So right, right. no, none of these families said that, but I do think that they do understand that there is a way to, uh, you know, still be respectful. And so I know right. some of them actually take it upon themselves to talk with the youth to still say, Hey, we may feel a certain way about the police. Um, but we still have to be respectful. And so, you know, let's still continue to educate ourselves to do that but also understand that that may still not be enough. Right. Get it. Yeah. And so, um, which I don't, which I don't know. And how many stand their ground states are there? That I'd have to actually get back to you. I forget off the top of my head. Um, And it's interesting, you know, I say that with this series focuses on stand your ground states as well. Uh, The ones that we did have that we were supposed to focus on that case, we uh, weren't able to, to fully highlight their stories this season. So these first seven cases are all more police, um, uh, more police affiliated, um, but we do touch on in each of these episodes. We kind of do little tangents to mention other individuals, and there are people in those stand your ground states within that. Um, so I just want to make sure I, I made that clear as, as okay. people look at these stories and say, "Hey, where's the stand your you know where's your stand your ground state stuff?" But you know, I think um, you know the issues are very similar there, and I want to make sure in future seasons that we do do more stories centered around those instances. But I, I'd have to get back to you on the exact number of states who have that at the moment. Okay, great. Thank you. And we'll, yeah, we'll definitely do the research ourselves because I was the only stand your ground state I knew of was Florida. So only because of uh, what happened with Trayvon Martin. Um, but I'm sure there are countless, uh, there are some other states as well yeah. that have that. Um, they tend to be down south. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> so, um, so in, in the instances, you know, the cases where um, the seven stories, have there been any changes uh, in the police departments or how policing is done? If and if not, what should we be doing, uh, pressing for our communities uh, to make the changes necessary? So there was, I mean, even though I, I'm guessing you're already working on a season two, but maybe so season two is the last you know season that we have to do this. Yeah, I'd love for that to be the case. Um, I think in terms of have we seen any differences within these police departments, in particular with the ones that, uh, that we talked to, these cities, these states that we were in, uh, no. You know, we were in Tallahassee, Florida, um, where I believe they haven't convicted any, any police officer or indicted any police officer in 20 years or more than 20 years. Wow. Um, so nothing has changed there. We have at least two or three stories where people still live in the same town or city as the police officer who shot their loved one or shot mm-hmm. them. Um, so these officers are still there and these families have to see them on a regular basis. Um, the, I guess the only one I'd say that there is some changes happening in the police department is uh, Minneapolis, because we did 
talk to the family of Jamar Clark. Now, this latest change with the police department isn't because of Jamar. It's because now of the latest George Floyd situation. But when we tell that story, you'll notice that there's such a, a communal thread that runs between uh, Jamar Clark, who was first. And I say Jamar Clark. His real name was Jamar Burns Hill is what we should be calling him. Um, and we'll get more into that. But Jamar Burns Hill is one. And then that goes into Flando Castile the next year. And then that goes into George Floyd. And each one of those cases set a new precedent that has gotten us to where we are. So I think that's the interesting thing of this is that as we understand, change doesn't happen right away. Um, but at least in that situation, we're seeing them trying to do something with the police. Um, but in talking to these families, talking to the activists in Minneapolis, they're not convinced that even that's going to really solve anything. Um, so, yeah, most of these are situations where, uh, if, if anything, they're re-victimizing these families by allowing these officers to, to stay on the job. And, and honestly, one of them got a promotion. Wow. And, and, and kind of what, what was that communal thread that you had mentioned? that's kind of prevalent out there? Well, the communal thread was particular for Minneapolis. Um, so Jamar Burns-Hill, um, who again, most people know as Jamar Clark, uh, his when he was killed, uh, they did away with grand juries in Minneapolis. He's the reason that there's no grand, or the people who are fighting for him, let me be more clear, uh, they made sure that there was no grand jury. They, that was the first ever, I think it was like a, and I apologize, I'm gonna get the exact number wrong, but I believe it was around like a 20 day occupation of the fourth precinct in Minneapolis. So that really started that, that protest activism in Minneapolis. Then you have uh, Philando Castile, that then took it to the next level, that, you know, that protest, that outrage grew even more. And now you're seeing more of the, more of the pattern that the world is now able to see. Because now, you know, as you kind of mentioned in this intro to, to our conversation, now there's more video footage. There's the opportunity for us to see what happened. And then we get to George Floyd and we obviously now are defunding the police, but that's all based around, you know, the community just saying we've had enough. We've been on these streets for years now talking about Jamar, talking about Philando talking about now George, and I, I am not discounting the countless other names that went right. in between all those and even right. before those. I'm just mentioning the ones that most of us know. Um, but yeah, that's that communal thread that runs through them. So even though Jamar didn't make all, you know, Jamar's case didn't make that change right away, Philando and then George got us to where we are now. Right. And I'm guessing because no grand, with the grand jury, they were not, um, they would not bring these cases to trial. Correct. So grand juries are very are secretive. And so we don't know uh, what is being presented to the juries before they then decide not to indict an officer. And that's where a lot of the outrage comes in these instances, because uh, even when there's video footage, they'll hold that video footage and, and until after the grand jury, because they don't want to poison the jury pool, uh, which is bull. Um, and so now with a open grand jury, now they have to be open about, OK, what am I presenting? And now the uh, public can, you know, obviously we're not trying people in the public court of opinion, but when you have to be transparent about what you're presenting and how you came to the decision that you came to, you're going to get a little bit more opportunity for justice. And so I think that's what Jamar's, you know, situation did. It did away with these secretive grand juries that could allow the killers, I mean, allow the families of Philando to get uh, justice for the people who killed their loved one. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and that's really the main problem when we come to these cases. You know, they're very secretive because um, they don't want the real. If without videos, you don't want the real story to come out. And yeah. it, you know, I'm sure. And it's and even though um, it's hard to watch, I mean, we can just think about the most recent ones: 
cases. If we didn't have video, um, who knows what what would have occurred? They probably would be, you know, in your next ep- next season's episodes because of the just the heinous crimes of these individuals. It's 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 hard it's, it's hard to watch. Um, yep, it's hard to watch. So, thank you. So, I always ask, you know, usually people on the show because it's always not not it's not always about what we're doing. You know, we are we are doing a lot in our communities, uh, but you know, on a personal level, we have thoughts. So as a black man, what's on your mind right now? I think is because of what I've been working on to say their name. I think, you know, what's on my mind is, man, how many stories do I not know about? I think, you know, what has happened now having done our first season and it hasn't been out in the world. So this is only going to get bigger once it's out there come October 12th. But, the fact that these families are connecting us with other families, um, ones that we've never heard about, ones where there literally is no Google search you can do to find this person's name. Mm. Um, I think that's the the, the piece that we're going to eventually get into and, and what is prevalent on my mind and what unfortunately makes me a little nervous in the fact that my hardest problem moving forward, our hardest problem as a production team is going to be how do we highlight, you know, as many of these as we can, knowing that there's unfortunately not enough time in a day, not enough resources for us to talk about every single individual who's been killed like this uh, or assaulted like this. And so, you know, it's uh, hoping that what we're doing will we'll shed a light on this a little bit more um, and to hopefully help this not happen as much or, or at all, as you were saying before, I unfortunately am a little pessimistic to believe it's going to stop happening altogether, but at least we can help to lead to it happening less often. And then also the fact that I think there's a lot of families out there who don't know the resources that are available to them if they happen to find themselves in these kinds of situations. Um, and that's something else that we hope that this project will, will help them with is the fact that a lot of these Families that we talk about uh, or that we talk to are doing foundations or are working with uh, foundations or coalitions of, of individuals who've gone through this to provide a safety net, a, a network to each other, not only just as a shoulder to cry on, but also to help find financial resources or to help walk them through the steps that they're going to face in civil court. And, you know, I think that's a, another thing that has me concerned is that there's a lot of people doing great work out there and we just don't know where that is. And so people are, are losing out on opportunities to find resources to help them with their struggle. Um, but again, hopefully what we're doing can help uh, shed a light on those organizations and uh, make sure that everybody has what they need. Yeah, man. well, I think this podcast and this series is going to really do that, shed a light and, and let people know that one, that we have to keep uh, pressing the flesh and pro- protesting and speaking out against uh, violence and not in our communities uh, by the police. That's one. And two, that we we also have to play a part and look out for uh, those individuals who might be in a in a position where something might happen to them. We we tend to we tend to like stay on the sidelines, you know, film film it and think it's for entertainment until something occurs. And yeah. we have to really do, we have to do more to kind of look out for our neighbors and to avoid these things from happening again and, uh, and again and again. Um, and, you know, hopefully instead of other shows that we kind of portray and, and put out front, we need to put these kind of stories out front because these are, these are stories that will help uh, change how, not only how we're viewed, but um, to get some, 
really things done. So I applaud you for this uh, podcast. I can't wait to October 12th uh, till it comes out. So uh, how, how can people uh, follow the show? Yeah, so we uh, it's a podcast that'll be on every podcast platform. So Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, all those, all, any place that you like to listen to your podcast. Um, you can also go to our website to listen to it directly there. Uh, and that's dcpofficial.com. Um, you can also follow us on social media at DCP official. And, and we always give information on how to check out the show there. Um, but I really encourage people even now before October 12th, go you know, start following the feed. That way, as we start putting out new content, new episodes, we have a trailer there for you to check out and get a sense of these stories that we're trying to tell. But also while you're there, if you can go into our show notes, you'll see there's a link for um, the crowdfunding that we're doing uh, for these families. I'd like to get that you know, really up and, and going. We've already had a few donations early on, um, but the, this money is 100% going directly to these seven families. And like I mentioned, a lot of them um, have sold their homes. A lot of them are living in the same home that their loved one was killed in. Um, you know, Some are paying medical bills or legal fees. So this will all help for those families in that kind of way. Um, so uh, all to say, if you check out the trailer, um, and whether you like it or not, please donate to these families. You know, don't, uh, uh, you know, if you don't want to listen to the series, that's fine. But, you know, anything that we can do to help these families, I think would be really important. That's great. Yeah. So we talk about on this show, activism uh, being important. And we always want to, when we hear about these stories, how we can support and, we, you know, these individual families don't always get that support. And so we need to do our part. Uh, Chris, uh, thank you for uh, allowing a f- several minutes to talk about this this topic. Uh, this, the podcast is Say Their Name. Uh, he's a CEO of DCP Entertainment. Great podcast on there as well. So don't just think about this one. Think about the other uh, shows that he has on. Um, he's a black man doing his thing, helping the community. So, uh, Chris, thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it, Keith. And thank you for what you're doing here. And also at the same time, thank you for allowing you know me to speak to your audience and, and let them know about what we're doing. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, for giving us some insight into this epidemic that still continues to affect our communities to this day. Say Their Name premieres on October 12th, anywhere podcasts are available. And if you're compelled to give a financial contribution to support the families through their trauma, go to dcpofficial.com backslash say their name. Black Men Speak was written and produced by Keith Dent and edited by Grace Chung. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, just to name a few. As you know, we always like to end with a quote, and today's quote is by James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. This is Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.